Good morning, friends. Good morning. Our final more than the score of the season. How many people are sad this morning? <laughs> yeah, we're a little sad as well. <laughs> it's been a great season. Um, how many of you agree? We kicked off the season with Larry Sabato. Larry Sabato making his prediction that was not exactly 100%. He'll be back next year to uh, tell us new predictions. Um, we also saw some of the great professors like um, uh, over at the Miller Center. Um, gosh, her name's gone. How, how quickly. We saw Greg Fairchild from Darden. We saw Barbara... Perry over at the Miller Center. She spoke about Supreme Court justices. How about that was fantastic, was it not? Yeah. And Greg Fairchild talked about um, the teachings he's doing over at the prison system. That was really amazing as well. And how about the innovation that we learned about? Yeah, that was really, really good. So fantastic lectures this year. We're up for a new one this morning, another one. Um, John Ragasta will be here. He'll be speaking in just a few moments, and he'll be talking about religious freedom. So I think you're in for another great treat, our final talk for the season. So I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Director of Lifetime Learning. And I, I want to just stop a second and pause and thank the Alumni Association for welcoming us in this wonderful facility Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. Um, they are our partners, and they help us produce this great program for the last 11 years. So give them a hand. Okay, so before we begin, um, a few housekeeping tips. You guys know this. You could say it without me. Your phones, go ahead and silence that, turn it down, turn it off. Um, feedback cards, we've passed out those great feedback cards. We really do use those to help plan future uh, talks, so please take, take a moment at the end of the, today's talk and give us your feedback. Um, also, we are recording today's lecture, and it'll be made available on our website in just a few days, so feel free to download and share those, and share the entire season. We've recorded all except for the very first one, which was uh, Larry Sabato's talk, so please uh, share those. A couple of lectures, I know people are going through withdrawals already because More Than the Score is ending. We aren't ending. We produce lots of great programs throughout the year. One coming up on December 6th, uh, we're doing a wine pairing uh, conversation with an engineering faculty talking about the engineering of wine. It's uh, December 6th. It's going to be over at the Boar's Head. Please join us there. How many of you have heard about Jefferson in Paris? We're going to Paris this year, guys. Join us, please, in June, June 25th through uh, July 1. We'd love to have you there. We've got two great faculty from the architecture school that will be uh, leading those talks. And then we've got talks coming up around the MLK celebration in January. We've got two great talks. Anita Hill will be in town, and uh, we'll be sponsoring that talk over at the Paramount in, uh, I think it's January 26th. So we look forward to seeing you again this, uh, uh, actually in the new year. And um, I'm going to turn things over to Tom Folders president here at the Alumni Association, and he'll be introducing our speaker for the morning. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being here all season, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Good morning. First of all, I think we ought to give a round of applause to Althea, because she's put together a great program this year. <laughs> And she told me I ought to explain these buttons. 
because not too many people got them. It's, it's uh, basically um, not quite a Category 1. We're playing the hurricanes, get it? Okay, that's enough. <coughs> uh, Mr. Jefferson is well known as one of the founders of America's religious freedom and separation of church and state. Yet while he strongly opposed government involvement in religion, he always expected Americans to be privately religious. You can certainly see this in his design of the university. He worked diligently against considerable political opposition to ensure the university did not actively promote religion, but left religious matters to the students. John Rogoska, a fellow at the Virginia Foundation of Humanities, history faculty at Randolph College, and UVA Summer Jefferson Symposium, um, will help us understand Mr. Jefferson's role in defining America's religious freedom. His plan for UVA and the modern religious freedom issues with which we continue to grapple. John is a modern day version of a Renaissance man. He took his law degree from the university and did the expected. He joined a major law firm in Washington, D.C. And he did exceedingly well. But after 20 years of international trade, he felt a calling back to his first love, history and bees. <laughs> More on that. He received his master's degree in history from George Washington University and his PhD back here in Charlottesville. He has written award-winning books, has taught history and law at the university, as well as George Washington University, Oberlin College, Hamilton College, and he's currently at Randolph College in Lynchburg. On his beekeeping hobby, John believes bees have a lot to tell us about life. Creating the proper environment in which to thrive in some ways is like raising bees. You need some sunlight, not too much wetness, nourishing food, and protection from one's enemies, both internal and external. Please welcome John Rogoska. Thank you. Good morning. Okay, uh, important question, show of hands. Who has not been up the mountain and seen Thomas Jefferson's tomb? Anybody in this room? Okay, hurricane fan, right there. So, so I, I bring this up because actually we can learn a lot uh, about Jefferson at his tomb. After Jefferson died, uh, notes were found with his papers. And one of those notes said he would like his memorial, if one was to be erected, to say, here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the, American, uh, of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia, and not a word more. And Jefferson's wish was as good as a command to his family, and that's exactly what he has on his tombstone. Now, a number of people comment on this. Of course, it doesn't say anything about his family. It doesn't say loving father, devoted son. It doesn't mention that he was president, vice president, ambassador, member of Congress, governor, things that most of us would probably mention on our tombstone, if it were us. But this was not false humility for Jefferson. That when he came up with this list, political freedom, religious freedom, educational freedom, freedom of the mind, he really saw this as the core of a republic. Because if we were going to have a republic, if we were going to have a democracy, you have to have thinking people thinking in independent people. And that requires political freedom, religious freedom, and education. And in fact, if you look a little further into Jefferson and his thinking, 
religious freedom is the foundation. Because he understood that without religious freedom, what he would say is kings, nobles, and priests will destroy the free-thinking person. You can't have political freedom if you don't have religious freedom, and you can't have educational freedom if you don't have religious freedom, because somebody's going to be trying to control your mind. And you have to have free and independent thinking. So today, if I want to talk about religious freedom, and in particular religious freedom at the University of Virginia, his tomb is a good place to start. And um, it, there are a number of things we could talk about. We could be here, I think the game starts at 2. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm going to talk only about two things uh, in some detail. The one is the question of why Thomas Jefferson? Is it appropriate for us to always talk about Thomas Jefferson and religious freedom? Does he define religious freedom in some important way as opposed to George Washington or Alexander Hamilton, who's suddenly become popular in certain sectors? Uh, and then the second question is, how does he apply this concept at the University of Virginia? Now, when the Supreme Court first took up the issue of religious freedom in 1879 in Reynolds v. United States, in a unanimous decision, they said that religious freedom really is defined by Thomas Jefferson. The statute for re religious freedom, which he wrote, is the true distinction between what properly belongs to the church and what to the state. Jefferson's Danbury Baptist letter, now this is the famous letter where he says we need a wall of separation between church and state. The Supreme Court unanimously says that letter may be accepted almost as an authoritative declaration of the scope and effect of the First Amendment. And this notion has continued in the Supreme Court for at least 100 years. In the 1960s, in McGowan versus Maryland, Jefferson's act is best reflecting the long and intensive struggle for religious freedom in America. And this was really the way academics and jurists thought about religious freedom. Thomas Jefferson and his notion of separation of church and state, that's what religious freedom is about. But in time, we started to hear some dissident voices on the question of religious freedom. By 1985, Justice Rehnquist in Wallace versus Jaffrey, the moment of silence case, really questions why should we pay attention to Thomas Jefferson? He says, this fixation on Jefferson is demonstrably incorrect as a matter of history. There is simply no historical foundation for the proposition that the framers intended to build the wall of separation. Other justices, notably uh, Justice Thomas, says that focusing on Jefferson to help understand religious freedom is misleading application of history. So this raises an important historic question. Now, when I was first working on this project and on the book, Religious Freedom, I was on a fellowship at the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. And I explained my project to some of the librarians there. And one of them came back that afternoon and gave me this. He said, so this is really your project. It's TJ versus Rehnquist. And I, I love, you know, historians don't have a lot of humor. We have to take it where we can find it. I, said, I, I had this on my office wall for a number of years, or for a number of months. And, um, one day, one of the other fellows came in, and he looked at that, and he sort of shakes his head, and he says, John, I don't think Jefferson would have really hit Rehnquist. And I said, no, you're probably right. He would have Madison do it for him. He would, <laughs> Jefferson's no dummy. But OK, enough of that for a moment. But I, I think Rehnquist really is raising a very important question. Why should we focus on Thomas Jefferson? So this was one of the questions in my book. 
And I often ask my students when I'm teaching, how do we know? I mean, there's an interesting historic question. You don't just simply pick up a book and get the answer. How do we know whether Jefferson should be the icon of American religious freedom? And so I looked at a number of factors, um, only a couple of which I'll, I'll talk about this morning. One of which was I wanted to know what people thought in the early 19th century, in the period when the University of Virginia is being created. Do people at that time think that American religious freedom is defined by Thomas Jefferson? And then second, I wanted to look at alternatives. Are there other people who maybe were thought of as equally important or more important than Thomas Jefferson in explaining what American religious freedom was? So in this first question, what did people think was religious freedom and who did they turn to? Well, one of the things that we can do today as historians and academics is there's wonderful databases. You know, they, they didn't have these when I first went to school. Um, and you can now log on and look at 18th and 19th century newspapers and journals and start pulling up who did they talk about when they talked about religious freedom. And in doing this, I found that across the United States for many, many years, people, when they faced questions of religious freedom, talked about Thomas Jefferson. And in fact, what would happen is when a state was debating some important question about religious freedom, they would quote Jefferson's statute for establishing religious freedom, or they would quote Madison's memorial and remonstrance, or the Danbury Baptist letter, and sometimes they'd say, we ought to remember what that great American Thomas Jefferson says, and they would reprint the entire statute, which is a long document. This footnote, what I put up, again, only academics can love this. So I, so I have a footnote that talks about all the places where I find these newspaper articles. It starts here on this page, goes down here, goes to the next page, it goes down here, goes to the third page, goes down here. And, and of course, this is only just a start. One got the, the databases are always being improved. Uh, I have over 100 here, but it's fair to say there are hundreds of references to Thomas Jefferson and his statute. And these aren't simply references. These are long quotes, quoting the entire Danbury Baptist letter. There are scores and scores of additional quotes where people on the 4th of July or when Jefferson dies say Jefferson was known for religious freedom. That's, what, that's where we find religious freedom. At toasts during patriotic celebrations, they would talk about Jefferson and religious freedom. I actually found emigration pamphlets um, these are fascinating documents that at the time we were trying to get people to come to America from Europe, Kentucky actually printed up a pamphlet trying to encourage Europeans to move to Kentucky. And at the end of the pamphlet it says one of the things you'll get when you move to Kentucky is religious freedom. And you want to know how? And they reprinted Jefferson's statute for religious freedom, word for word. This is American religious freedom. I also found textbooks. I went to look for textbooks. What would students be taught? was American religious freedom. And a number of textbooks from the early 19th century say Jefferson and the Virginia statute. George Bancroft, the most well-known 19th century historian, his magisterial work, it's published in 1834. The preamble to the bill for establishing religious freedom drawn by Jefferson expressed the ideas of America, the forming convictions of the people of the United States. Robert Howison's textbook, Burke's textbook, they all talk about Jefferson and separation of church and state. Okay, and there are a number of other things I look at in the book, but that's, that's pretty, I would say to a student, that's good evidence. But what about this question that Rehnquist raises and Thomas raises about alternatives? Aren't there other people? After all, when we talk about the founders, there are many founders 
Why Jefferson? Why shouldn't we be looking at other people who talked about religious freedom and maybe talked about it in a different voice? So academics and jurists like Rehnquist and Thomas have given us some suggestions. One, um, Daniel Dreisbeck, he's a professor at American University, says we, don't, we shouldn't look to Jefferson. We should, that's a, how did that happen? Uh, that's a terrible picture, but if you can see it, anybody know who this is? Nobody knows, it's hard to see, but even if you could see it. Nobody knows who this is. Nobody knew who this was in the 19th century. This is a fellow named Jasper Adams. He's actually the president of uh, Charleston College in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. He's an Episcopal minister. He writes an extended sermon. It's about 50 pages long, saying that religious freedom is not about separation of church and state. The government should be supporting the Christian church. And he has that sermon printed up, and he sends it to everybody he can think of. And he, still, nobody knows who Jasper Adams is. <laughs> we can find five references to him and his sermon in the newspaper. Three of them are in religious newspapers simply announcing that the sermon was published, although they are favorable. One of the five is written by the uh, dean of Tulane Law School, a Jeffersonian, in which in an extended review he trashes Jasper Adams and says, no, Jefferson explains religious freedom. Not only that, Jasper Adams wasn't born when the First Amendment was drafted. He is not a founder, and he's not describing religious freedom. Well, maybe that one's a little too easy. That's a better picture. How about this one? This is a little more plausible. This is Justice Joseph Story. Some of you have heard Joseph Story. He writes commentaries on the Constitution in the 19th century. He's one of the most famous justices of the 19th century. And Rehnquist and Thomas and others say we should be looking for, to Justice Story to define religious freedom rather than Thomas Jefferson. And of course, the reason they say that is it's all about church and state. It's all about separation. Now, Justice Story, though, was only 10 years old when the First Amendment was drafted. He's not a founder. Not only that, when he writes his commentaries on the Constitution, it's published in 1833. It's an important date in American religious freedom. He's from Massachusetts. And he writes in his commentaries on the Constitution that Massachusetts has developed the correct approach to religious freedom, a pointed affirmation of the American principle of religious freedom. Well, Massachusetts was still collecting a tax to pay Christian ministers. And Story tells us that's a pointed affirmation of American religious freedom. That year, when he publishes that book in 1833, the people of Massachusetts vote 10 to 1 to eliminate that establishment and separate church from state. Now, when the justices like to quote Justice Story, Justice Berger is also a relatively conservative justice, he says, well, this is what Justice Story says. The real object of the First Amendment was to prevent any national ecclesiastical establishment. Now, you know, I tell law students and young lawyers, when you see a quote and there's an ellipsis in it, you want to know what's really being said. That's not what Justice Story said. This is what Justice Story said. The real object of the First Amendment was not to countenance, much less to advance Mohammedism or Judaism or infidelity by prostrating Christianity, but to exclude all rivalry among Christian sects and to prevent any national ecclesiastic establishment. The reason Berger doesn't want to put this in his opinion is because we know not only is this offensive, but it's wrong. We know that it's well established at the time that the First Amendment was supposed to apply to all religious people and believers and non-believers from around the world. 
And this is not a respectable position. In fact, Jefferson and Madison told us that this was not why it was drafted. Jefferson, in his autobiography, we meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection religious freedom, the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan, the Hindu and infidel of every denomination, every denomination. Madison in the memorial remonstrance says, don't you understand, you can read it, he says, don't you understand if the government has the authority to establish Christianity, it could establish Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Jews. And Madison, of course, says the government simply does not have this authority. There's a lot of other evidence I could go through, but I think that it is fair to say that when the Supreme Court and historians for over 100 years have said that religious freedom in America is defined by Thomas Jefferson and a strict separation of church and state, there's very sound historic reasons for that conclusion and calling Jefferson an icon of religious freedom. But then that brings us to the University of Virginia, because if this is so important to Jefferson, what's he going to do when he forms the University of Virginia? Now that may sound like an easy question, but at the time, almost all colleges were privately owned, and they were owned by churches, essentially. They were church institutions. Excuse me. There was one other state college. UVA like, likes to forget that UNC actually was the first state university in the country. Um, but at UNC, they still had mandatory chapel. There was a chapel, and the students had to go to a mandatory chapel. So Jefferson, who's deeply dedicated to political freedom, religious freedom, and education, realizes that in forming a state university, he's going to have to grapple with this question of church and state. And he makes it clear from the very beginning that he wants religion at University of Virginia, just like religion in the United States, to be a matter for the individual free from government. And the UVA, let's not forget, UVA is the government, free from government restraint. So very, very early on, he decides that uh, we're going to have no professor of divinity. Now this seems like a small thing, but again, every other university in the world had a professor of divinity who's basically a minister who's also going to be heading up the chapel and students are going to come to that person for religious, religious protection. But when Jefferson decided this, of course, um, it was subject to a lot of criticism. A lot of people said, well, what are the students going to do for religion? How are they going to be virtuous and moral people? So facing that kind of criticism, um, Jefferson writes Thomas Cooper in 1822, who was supposed to be one of the first professors. He, he is not. Uh, but he writes Cooper, and he says, you know, we were trying to have separation of church and state. We were trying to make clear that the students were responsible for their own religion, and the government wouldn't give it to them. But people were saying, we're against all religion, rather than simply being for government staying out of religion. And UVA was under enormous pressure. They were talking about, it was still a question whether UVA was going to be the state university. And the opening of UVA was being delayed because of this question of religion at the University of Virginia. So that year, the board makes a different decision. They write to the state and they say, um, it is expedient. Uh, it has been suggested that maybe what we need to do is have religious schools on the confines of the university. And the idea was that the Baptists could come and create a seminary here at the university, the Presbyterians and anybody else could create a seminary and put it on the university grounds. And that way the students could study there, but they would also be able to study at the university at the same time. 
And they would be able to use a building. It's talking about the rotunda, which wasn't yet built. They would be able to use a building for religious services under impartial regulations. We'll come back to that. Under impartial regulations. But always understanding that these schools shall be independent of the university. It's not a state. It's not a state-run religious institution. But it doesn't stop there. Jefferson is very unhappy with this solution. Um, and this is a report of the board to the state government, but the state government never says anything. So Jefferson and Madison immediately start to walk it back. By 1823, Madison is writing to other people that, well, these seminaries can be near the university, not on the university grounds, but near the university. By 1824, the board says something a little bit different. They're now talking about on the university or adjacent to the university. But they say, if, if the churches decide to do this, we're not going to build these seminaries, but if these churches build seminaries on or near the university, the students will be free and expected to attend the religious worship at the establishment of their respective sects. And they make it clear that it's going to be up to the students with no control by the university. And Jefferson is still not happy with that solution. By 1825, he's writing broken bra that they can be in the vicinity of UVA. <laughs> and Jefferson is still not happy with that solution. In 1825, there's a request made by a traveling minister to hold church services in Pavilion 1. And um, Jefferson is approached by broken bra. I think broken bra is the first proctor, or he's one of the people running the universities. And, um, Broken Bra says, we want to use pavilion number one for church services on Sunday morning. And Jefferson says, yeah, no. <laughs> um, he says, look, the buildings of the university belong to the state. They were erected for the purpose of the university. You have no right to permit their application to any other. He goes on to say, talking about that earlier idea that we would have seminaries on the university grounds, that has been superseded. The first idea of permitting a room in the rotunda to be used for religious worship. And he says, look, they can build churches, they can build seminaries off grounds, and the students will be free to attend those, but they're not going to be part of the university. Now, um, and in fact, there are not, we do not have religious services at the university while Jefferson is alive. Uh, after his death is when we have a chaplain and we get the chapel. Uh, but Jefferson says, no, this is a state-run institution. Now, it's important to understand, you know, when Jefferson writes Cooper and he says that people are accusing us of being against religion, and that's not what we're about. Jefferson is, in fact, a deeply religious man. Now, he's not what anybody would really call a Christian in any normal sense, but he's a deeply religious man. But he believes that it's important that religion be an individual decision rather than one of the government. He likes to talk about, and I mentioned before this phrase, kings, nobles, and priests. Now, I tell, I tell students, say, look, if Thomas Jefferson's talking, and he's giving a list, and it starts kings, nobles, you don't want to be number three. Okay? He's, he, he's not happy with what's going on. He says kings, nobles, and priests. And the idea is, and by priests, he basically means any minister. He's not talking about simply Catholic priests. The idea is that these are institutions, kings, nobles, and priests, which have tried to control people. And what we need is a free people, a thinking people. And so he's adamant that the university will not be controlled by religion. Power of state and religion reinforce each other in a dangerous manner 
at the expense of the people, as far as Jefferson is concerned. Madison says something very similar. Religion as an engine of the civil polity. Okay. Religion as an engine of the civil polity is an unhallowed perversion. Because church will corrupt state and state will corrupt church. The government will try to control the church, the church will try to control the state, and what they're both interested in is power to control the people. And so what we need is a strict separation of church and state. Now this, is, uh, this has been an issue at the University of Virginia since its founding. Let's jump forward 175 years. And that, um, as I said, we, you know, we have a chapel in the intervening period. But the courts and people are still grappling, and we are still grappling today with this difficult question of how do we keep government out of religion and religion out of government in a world in which we are a very religious people. Because Jefferson always understood that while he wanted a wall of separation between church and state, he understood that on the other side of that wall, in the private sector, there would be a very vibrant religion and that people would be free and active in their religious beliefs. So how do we, how do we work this system? Now, one of the things we tend to forget when we talk about Supreme Court cases and modern disputes is that a lot of the easy questions have been resolved. And the court now is grappling with some very difficult questions. Well, interestingly, one of the most difficult and one of the most important for modern, modern religious freedom came up here at UVA, in the case of Rosenberger versus UVA. What happened in Rosenberger was there was a new student organization called Wide Awake, and it was a Christian journal commenting on the facts of the day and things that were going on. It was a student journal. And the student journal, Wide Awake, went to the university and said, you know, there are over 100 student organizations at the university that receive funding through the student activity fee, 118 student groups. And they said, we should get the same kind of funding as those other groups we should get our printing paid for just like the Glee Club or somebody else. Um, they were denied. They were denied by the Student Activities Committee. They were denied by the university because they were a religious organization. A lawsuit was filed. The district court agreed with the university. The Fourth Circuit agreed with the university. And it affirmed the decision saying there are compelling state interests to maintain a strict separation of church and state. And therefore, this religious organization cannot receive student activity fees. Well, this left, the case went on appeal to the Supreme Court. And it's a difficult case in many ways. Um, and so the question is, what will the Supreme Court do with this decision coming out of Mr. Jefferson's university about the interaction of religion and the state government? And maybe more important, if you're, if you're not from Charlottesville, okay, that's, what would Jefferson do? Okay, just understand. So, the, the Supreme Court uh, issues an important decision in Rosenberger, and it says, you know, in essence, the university has gone from being separated from religion to discriminating against religion. And for the university, by regulation, to cast disapproval on a particular viewpoint of its students risks the suppression of free speech and creative inquiry in one of the vital centers for the nation's intellectual life, its colleges and universities and campuses. 
that it is entirely appropriate for the university not to embrace religion, but it is equally inappropriate for the university to discriminate against religion when it's coming from the students. And the court makes clear, look, this is not a case where the university is running a program or a faculty member is speaking on behalf of the government. Because if the faculty member is speaking, he's a government employee. He speaks for the state. This is a case where the students are trying to speak. And the students have chosen to speak in a religious voice. And it's inappropriate for the state of, U of Virginia, for the University of Virginia, to deny them equal rights with every other student organization. And I think Thomas Jefferson would agree. Jefferson, when he was talking about the use of university facilities, talks about impartial regulations, but always understanding that these, these student religious organizations, shall be independent of the university. Well, what does Jefferson mean by impartial regulations? I think that what he was talking about is the idea that we will have students engaged in religious activities on campus, and they're going to be regulated just like students having a football game on campus or doing anything else on campus. That's going to be impartial. And the Supreme Court now uses the term neutrality. Government must be neutral vis-a-vis -vis religion, vis-a-vis -vis believers and non-believers. And I think that that's exactly what Jefferson would have agreed with. Um, Now I hope, uh, you know, if, if you've been around campus, you've, you've probably seen the chapel. I said, Jefferson, I don't think would be entirely happy with having a chapel on campus. Um, but maybe what you haven't seen, and let me suggest that before the game, if you have a moment, something that you might want to go see, is the statue in front of the rotunda. And when we see this statue, we of course see Thomas Jefferson on top of what looks like a Liberty Bell. But we tend to miss these four figures that are around the bottom of the statue. These four figures are the spirits of liberty, justice, religious freedom, and equality, or the Declaration of Independence. The statue, this statue uh, was crafted by an artist in the 19th century, Moses Ezekiel. Moses Ezekiel was Jewish. He's a graduate of uh, VMI. He understood religious freedom. He understood religious persecution. And he honors Jefferson with this statue. And he has, in particular, the spirit of religious freedom on one side holding a tablet. And when you go to the rotunda today, walk around and look at that tablet. The tablet lists the Religious Freedom Act of 1786, Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom, followed by Jehovah, God, Brahma, Ra, Atma, Allah, Zeus. And Moses Ezekiel was asked to explain this statue at one point. And he wrote that these list of deities show that under our government, government, they mean and are all God and have no other meaning and have each an equal right and protection of our just laws as Americans. I think he was speaking not only for himself, but he was speaking for Jefferson. Jefferson wanted to be very clear that religious freedom and separation of church and state was not against religion, but it was emphatically against government's involvement in religion. 
And I think that uh, Moses Ezekiel captured that, that image quite appropriately. But I'm so pleased you came this morning and welcome you to UVA and happy we have uh, plenty of time for, for questions if people have questions or thoughts. And there are microphones so that we can hear the questions. Thank you. Thank you. A uh, hundred years before Jefferson was born, there was Roger Williams, yes. banished from Massachusetts Bay by the Puritans who were doing exactly what they didn't like in England. And I would like you to comment. I think of him as being Jeffersonian before Jefferson, but perhaps in a slightly different direction much more interested in getting the church free from the control of the state, yes. if you will. Uh, would you like to talk about, a little bit about that? It's quite interesting. Yeah, thank you. It's a very yeah. good question. Um, Roger Williams, again, we all sort of had this vague recollection from high school history. Very important person, very devout. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Roger Williams, he's a devout minister. This is, this is somebody you can't accuse of being irreligious. And yet he's adamantly opposed to government and, and uh, church interacting because he wants to get the government out of the church. He believes the government corrupts the church. Um, something that I talk about in my first book, let's pause for this in a moment. One of the reasons why Baptist and Presbyterian ministers in Virginia are adamantly in favor of separation of church and state. Okay, get your mind around that for a moment. 18th century Virginia, Baptist ministers want a strict separation of church and state. And the reason for that was that they understood that if the government is involved in religion, it encourages people to be religious. And you say, well, that's a good thing. And the Baptist minister said, no, that's not a good thing. John Leland, one of the most famous Baptist ministers, 18th century Virginia, says, if the government can come with me to the judgment seat when I die and stand in front of God, then the government can be involved in religion. If not, they have to stay out because it has to be my choice. There's free will Baptist. I have to make a free will decision. And this was very much what Roger Williams was talking about, that the government is going to corrupt religion because in its efforts to encourage religion, it's really going to be counterproductive because people need to make a free choice. And so Roger Williams is very much in that, that mode. Now historically, I have to say, one of the problems with Roger Williams from a historic perspective we don't find anybody talking about Roger Williams in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, now why that is, why he was essentially forgotten, he's brought back by academics sort of in the 20th century. I say nobody, of course some people mention Roger, but you don't see this kind of references to Roger Williams in the Constitution or in the, uh, the debates in the court cases. And so his contribution really um, seemed to be largely forgotten for a long period of time, but he's absolutely in the same, in the same mode. Got one here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I wanted to ask how, uh, I was going to say how the heck, but maybe how in God's name did the, uh, did the chapel get here and uh, was it controversial at the time? Um, it, it, that's, an, that's a good question. Uh, Jefferson would like to have an answer to that question. Uh, <laughs> who thought that was a good idea? After Jefferson died, I mean, you can understand it's the 19th century. There's a lot of pressure to, to have a place. And, you know, in fairness, the students needed, if, if students wanted to go to church, they had to have a place to worship. Now, Jefferson says, town's close enough. They can walk, to, he actually says, they can walk the town. Um, but you can understand why people thought that wasn't close enough. 
So shortly after Jefferson's death, uh, the first chaplain is appointed. And Madison, um, who's the president at that time, Madison says, okay, fine, uh, we can have a chaplain, but he says, I want the students and their parents to be responsible for this. I don't want, I don't want us to be choosing a chaplain. Now that's going to change. Um, and he says, I want to make it clear that the students and their parents are paying for this. We're not paying for that chaplain. Uh, now over the 19th century, Madison's dead, and we fall back from that, and we get the chapel. Uh, now, of course, it's important the chapel is non-denominational. Um, and is, I, I think there is no longer a university chaplain. Is that correct? I think the teams have a chaplain, but I... So that we got away from that a little bit. Um, but it's 19th century. I mean, one of the, again, it's interesting historically because in the 19th century, if you remember your history, we get the Second Great Awakening and we get this explosion of religion. And that's when the Methodists and the Baptists and the Church of Christ and the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists and all these churches are created. Well, one of the things that Jefferson understood was that keeping government out of religion is actually good for religion. And, and so you get this religious, because of separation of church and state, you get a religious explosion um, that, that uh, then results in the chapel. I'd like you to address the issue of when Rosenberger was decided, whether the court reached any conclusion or even suggestion as to what happens when one of these student-sponsored organizations makes a practice of attacking another similarly disposed student organization under freedom of speech? Uh, no, the, the, very good question. And no, the court does not discuss that directly. Um, interestingly, Jefferson does. Uh, Jefferson, and he's just, in one of his letters, he sort of says, you know, maybe the one thing we ought to require for tolerance is that people be tolerant of others. And, and so maybe we ought to, as a government, say that you have freedom of speech, you have freedom of religion, if you are tolerant of others. Uh, now, that does not become US law, as we know, and that doesn't become part of the Constitution. Uh, but certainly, there is no I mean, freedom of speech. You can say abhorrent things, and that's part of the system. You cannot engage in abhorrent acts. The government, Jefferson also makes that distinction. The government has every right to regulate action, which is against social uh, social norms. So. Would yes. you address the uh, failed attempt by the faculty wives to build a statue on the lawn? I think it was in front of Pavilion 7, and um, how the events of the Civil War um, thwarted that campaign. But I think an architect was engaged you may know more about it than I do. I, I know that the, the originally there was going to be a chapel earlier on, and it was at that period of time, um, and they were going to put it on the lawn, which would have really messed up the lawn a little bit. I think uh, Wayne can probably... Uh, was not an architect engaged for this? Yes. And there are drawings for this, yes. and only because the faculty wives invested in Confederate bonds did it not go forward. <laughs> Uh, and a, that know, investment. I love irony, you know. <laughs> uh, but I, I knew that that effort had been made, and it fell apart. So, so it was pre-Civil War. It falls apart. The current chapel is post-Civil War, and it's, it's only after the war and money is available. And I think it was a result of that sweep of religiosity that you mentioned that it was unthinkable that there was not 
a chapel on a university. You know, this, this relationship between American religiosity and religious freedom is an important one. We tend to look at those immediately and we say those things are inconsistent, but in fact, Jefferson understood that no, they're very consistent. One thing I tell people is, okay, look, uh, if you go to Germany today, there are still religious taxes. You pay taxes to support the church. If you go to Italy, every one of the schoolrooms has a crucifix in front of the schoolroom because the Catholic Church is the official church. If you go to England, the queen is the head of the Church of England. I've been to most of these places. Nobody goes to church. Okay? You, you, you know, in America, where we keep religion private, we have a very vibrant religious activity. So that, that again, this, this, um, it seems like it's inconsistent, but it's not inconsistent at all. This huge uh, movement for religion in America in the 19th and 20th century is really because of religious freedom and separation of church and state rather than um, intention. Right here. Um, I'm curious if there's any ongoing uh, legal activity in this area I, because of all this religious activity around the country. Are there any uh, significant cases moving forward having to do with separation of church and state? Oh, there's a lot of cases. Um, <laughs> we need Doug Laycock from the law school. Um, there's a lot of cases that have been around the Affordable Care Act and the question of birth control mandates. Uh, there's one in front of the court now. Um, one case, the one that's coming up now, which is more to this issue of neutrality, which is going to be very interesting. There's a school ground in Missouri, I think, that it's a church school, and they have a playground, and they wanted to. They had old equipment; it was dangerous for the kids. So they wanted to put in new equipment and and you know stuff on the ground so the kids wouldn't get hurt. Well, there was a state program that gave money to schools to build their their um, to help do these kinds of things. Um, they were denied because they're a religious school. And so that's at the Supreme Court now, and it's not unlike the Rosenberger case. Now there's a twist, by the way, because the Missouri Constitution is actually even stronger than the First Amendment, and it may be that case will be decided under the Missouri Constitution. But, so there's a lot of cases. One thing, though, that I mentioned earlier that's worth remembering is we're dealing with the difficult cases. I mean, in some respects, we've really succeeded and, and so as you succeed, you get down and down into more of these difficult things. Because we can never, as the court says, you can never have a complete separation of church and state. It, it, you know, what if the church catches on fire? Are the firemen not supposed to go there and put it out? Okay, is the church not supposed to be hooked up to the sewer system? They, 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 they're not going to have sidewalks and roads. So the government will be engaged with religion. It has to. But the idea is neutrality and then you get into some of these difficult cases. So yeah, there, there are a lot of cases going on. Um, and we've got one here and then one gentleman's been in the back. Yes, sir. Hi, thank you for coming. Uh, Jefferson initially attended the College of William and Mary, yeah. and I believe that's where he received his degree. Later in life, before he founded the university, he became estranged from the college, was that primarily because it was a church-dominated institution? I, I don't know primarily, but that was a big part of it. He, when he becomes governor, because at that point the status of William Mary is not clear, because after all they were a Episcopal uh, Church of England college. Uh, church of England is the official church of the Church of England. They're related through the governor. The governor makes all the appointments there. So when Virginia becomes independent, there was a real question about what do we do with William and Mary? And that's why they're not thought of as the first state school, because they're not really quite yet sure as to what they are. 
And Jefferson says that while he's governor, he tries to reform William and Mary and make it what he thinks of as a state school and get the ministers out, and he fails because there's just too much history there. Uh, and so he sort of says, okay, fine, we need our own, we need our own university. Um, during my time here at the university, I had the opportunity to read into Jefferson's son's activities. I noticed that you didn't mention anything about Thomas Jefferson Randolph, and I put a question to you. Is that anyone whose material of their conclusions you've read about? Um, Martha would prefer I not talk about Thomas Jefferson Mann Randolph. Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, a great deal about what Mann Randolph says about religion. He says a lot about slavery. He, he's well known for his views on slavery. Um, he's certainly not a founder. He's certainly not anybody that anybody's talking about in the newspapers or the journals at the time. Uh, he becomes, in the 1830s, well actually his son then is talked about a lot on the issue of slavery. But I, I don't know what his positions are, but he's not somebody that they're talking about. He is, keep, keep in mind, he's the grandson, by the way. Thomas Jefferson Mann Randolph is Martha's son. And he has been studied especially on slavery because he makes a real effort to um, phase out slavery in the 1830s. So if you read histories of slavery in Virginia in the 19th century, they'll talk a lot about Thomas Jefferson Mann Randolph. Please. Okay, we've been talking a lot about the government interfering in church. But there was a little news piece I read a couple of weeks ago that I was thinking WWJD, and I was figuring he'd leap out of his grave, catch a plane, and go to California. Because there was a Catholic church in San Diego that told its parishioners that it would be a mortal sin to vote Democratic. Yes, I saw that. And I, yeah. Uh, was there any follow-up on that or any comments you'd like to make on that situation? Oh, I got a lot of comments. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of things. It's a good question. One of the things that's very important is that a lot of people who want to limit separation of church and state say, well, it's trying to keep government out of religion, but it wasn't trying to keep religion out of government. No. 
it, it, Jefferson and Madison make clear that it's a two-way street, that they corrupt each other because it's this power structure that the, the elite are going to control people's thinking. So the absolutely separation of church and state is supposed to keep religion out of government. Now, Jefferson actually, again, he makes the idea at one point, he says to Madison, uh, he writes a, a proposed uh, constitution for, I think it was Kentucky, in which ministers could not hold public office. So we're just going to ban, back to this question of tolerance, he said, we're going to ban ministers from even holding public office. And Madison sort of says, you know, Tom, we can't do that. Because um, back to this idea of neutrality, that, that government is not supposed to be taking a position. So whether you're a minister or a blacksmith or a lawyer or a banker, you, you have every right to participate in government. Um, but that would be very concerning. The, the modern issue, back to the modern cases issues, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, why do churches get tax exemptions anyway? That um, I think the Supreme Court's views in this, Waltz versus Commissioner, um, says, look, these charitable exemptions apply to all charities. They don't apply just to churches. They apply to the Red Cross. They apply to United Way. And the church is getting the same exemption as these other organizations. Now, here's the problem, though. These other organizations are prohibited from engaging in political activity. You can't have a 501c3 uh, charitable organization actively engaged in politics. That's not tax exempt. And so these churches are forbidden by the tax regulations that if they want to keep their tax exemption, they're not allowed to actively engage in politics. And the problem is they do all the time. Um, in both ways. It's not, you know, but in this case, uh, it's one-sided. Uh, and there are a number of people that are trying to get the IRS to do something about this, and the IRS doesn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Because you can imagine what's going to happen. The first church they sue, because their minister was engaged in active politicking from the pulpit, you know, there's going to be a lot of screaming. Uh, but, but absolutely what the churches are doing is inconsistent with the understanding, and it's a violation of the IRS regulations but the IRS just doesn't seem to be willing to enforce. Final question? <laughs> okay, well thank you so much. <laughs>